0: Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston This is News Talk
1: Hello and welcome to Taking Stock I'm Mandy Johnston I'm going to be keeping you company for the next hour and we're going to be looking at some stories That have made the news here in Ireland and further afield. Coming up on today's show we've got Joe Miller from the Financial Times in New York. He's going to be joining us to give us an exclusive preview of what's in store for Donald Trump's upcoming court hearing next week. We're also of course going to be looking at all of the developments that happened in US politics over the past week as well. Then we're going to turn our attention closer to home to look at a topic that's on everyone's mind at the moment. That is of course housing. With Budget 2024 just around the corner we'll be taking a 360 degree view of this very complex issue. Stay tuned as I talk to Jack Corgan-Jones of the Irish Times and tax expert Marian Ryan who will both hopefully shed some light on the government's potential solutions to tackling this very pressing problem. And finally we're going to delve into that political landscape again in Poland as they head to an election. The war in Ukraine has cast a very long shadow over the political arena there. We're going to be exploring whether Ukraine is being used as a political pawn and the implications that that might hold for the war in Europe. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com I'm also open on x at stock nt. Now let's turn our attention to the upcoming elections in Poland which will take place on the 15th of October because the results there may define more than just Poland's domestic future depending on what party or what combination of parties form the next government the results could actually be felt right throughout Europe and indeed beyond. I'm delighted that Justina Pavlak from Reuters is joining me to discuss this. Justina, you're very welcome to News Talk. Hello, um, nice, nice, nice to talk to you. Now, Justina, before we get into what's what's happening in the elections now, can you just um, give us a brief overview, some context, of this election, who's in situ in government in in Poland at the moment, and uh, who's holding power?
2: So we have a, um, a we have a pretty um, kind of tightly contested election um, ahead of us. Um, we have a, um, a nationalist government um, run by by a party called the Law and Justice Party. Uh, which has been in power for eight years, and it's um, hoping for an unprecedented third third term in power. Um unfortunately for the party, opinion polls are showing it um, it, it is extremely likely to to come out uh, first, but opinion polls are also showing it might really struggle to um to win a majority. um it has um it has angered a lot of voters about um, over issues such as um, such as democratic standards, rule of law, um where it has faced a lot of criticism. Um, Things like minority rights um gay rights um abortion rights um all of those have been uh, kind of have been a, a source of criticism of the party. um the party also gives, um, is a, you know run to an extremely um extremely but a very loose fiscal policy um and ex, you know political observers essentially say that that's its its main winning point um it's conservative values, conservative social values and um a, and a, and a mix of um loose fiscal policy. So very close behind that is a kind of a large liberal party, um, which um, which is building its popularity on things like um, you know respect for for for, for women's rights, um, respect for minorities, and for for, for democratic standards. Um, but they're very close. Um, it may be that that, that the law and justice party called Peace um, wins. Um, it may be that the opposition wins. Um, what is likely to happen is months of um, kind of political instability. Many observers um, here in Poland say. Um, as as parties try to figure out who has a majority, um, a, a potential teammaker will be a, um, a far right party co- called the Confederation, um, and which which sort of campaigns on issues such as um, lower taxes and essentially a step back from, from supporting Ukrainian
1: refugees. Mm. Okay, so that's a, a good overview of the landscape. Um, just in terms of if the government, the the, the sitting government, the Law and Justice Party, uh, were to come back with in a kind of coalition format, can you just explain to us what the rules there are in Poland for those smaller parties gaining access to um, those coalition talks? I understand that there's minimum uh, votes that they have to get to even enter into those discussions, which is not the case here.
2: Um, essentially, there are three. There are two large parties right now, um, and three smaller parties. The smaller parties need to get either five or eight percent of votes um, to be able to get any lawmakers in parliament. And that's really kind of um, when you're looking at the possible results um, from the election. That's the key: how many, if any, um, of the small parties get in, because that's going to. Um, if 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 one of the the the, the liberal or left wing opposition opposition parties don't get in a lot of their votes essentially go to the biggest winner, which which is most likely going to be the the, um, uh, the ruling party, um, the Law and Justice Party.
1: Mm. It, you mentioned there like um, it's going mm-hmm. to be a high, states, high stakes national election. A um, lot of people commenting that a third term for this party would have serious ramifications and implications for democratic standards. Can you talk us through what those concerns actually are? Well,
2: um, the, the main concern that has been, that has been raised by, um, uh, uh, by, by the opposition in Poland, but also, you know, particularly by the European Union um, and, and, and Brussels institutions, is the justice system. Um, the government has done a lot of um, uh, reforms to, to overhaul the justice system. Its argument is essentially that the courts are ineffective, that, that courts are unfair, and that they're kind of filled with vestiges of communist-era power structures and that the reforms are aimed at getting rid of those um, opposition. And, and as I said, um, institutions in Brussels say that essentially it's a, that the reforms amount to a power grab by the government, um, and that it you know, amounts to a politicization of courts um, and gives more power to politicians over, um, over court decisions, over top courts, particularly the constitutional tribunal, um, as well as the, the prosecution, which has been merged with the Justice Ministry
1: mm. as one office. Yeah, and some other serious accusations against them. I suppose this comes with holding power for such a long time, but using the media as a mouthpiece for government was one of the other ones I saw, and even some accusations of, of fanning homophobia. Um, can you talk us through what's been what's what the accusations mm-hmm. are around those, and 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 how they're affecting the campaign?
2: I mean, much of the political debate in Poland right now is about um, about liberal values um, versus, um, versus um, uh, traditional Catholic values and what they mean. The government says um, that its role and its goal is to protect um, uh, traditional family values, um, Catholic values, and, and, and it has been trying to instill a lot of those um, into public life. Um, for example, in education, mm-hmm. um, in school curricula, uh, it has been accused by... Um, by its opponents, um, that it had played a role in a in a, in a constitutional court um, decision to ban abortion. I mean, uh, for the past three years, um, abortion is only allowed in Poland um, in the case of rape or or incest. Otherwise, it's, it's banned. So that's you know, and that's that's something that the government has welcomed as a that that's a court decision that the government has welcomed. Mm. The opposition says that it's uh, uh, that it's. Uh, you know, that it's essentially taking away the rights of minorities um, and that it's fraying the fabric of society by, by polarizing the country. Well, these issues.
1: A lot of obviously domestic issues there but one issue that has kind of hit the headlines worldwide really were uh, some comments made Mm -hmm. by President Duda last week who compared Ukraine to a drowning person that could end up bringing down the rescuer and then the Prime Minister told uh, a TV station in, in Poland that they were no longer supplying weapons to Ukraine because they're more intent on arming Poland with more modern weapons. Now I know that they've stepped back from some of those comments but can you explain to 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 me and to our listeners uh, the shift in thinking when it comes to polish support for ukraine in the invasion uh, by by russia
2: so to be fair um on, on, in practical terms um a lot of diplomats in warsaw would say that they um there hasn't been a practical shift um that the government hasn't actually um changed uh, policy or changed course um on supporting ukraine militarily um and in particular in terms of logistics, mm. I think um about eighty percent of western or American aid um go through polish territory towards ukraine um, I, I think a lot of it has to do and that's what a lot of the political observers in Poland would say um has to do with internal politics um the the, the ruling party has been taking over the last sort of several weeks or months um in an increasingly um, kind of tougher verbally um, stance towards Ukraine, um, and the observers here would say that it's a, that it's um, you know that it's a twofold effort. On the one hand, the issue of grain imports um, is, a, is, is resonating quite strongly um, with Polish farmers, um, and the rural communities are, are a part of the, the government heartland. Um, that's where a lot of their voters come from, mm. and the government does need to kind of galvanize its voters to make sure that they. A, that they supported, but they also leave the house on October 15th and vote. Um, on the other hand, the, the far right party that we've mentioned earlier, um, part of its campaign has been that the government and Poland has done too much, um, that it has given too much welfare um, to, to, to the millions of Ukrainian refugees that have come through the country. Um, that that the, the kind of the payments and the support are on par um, with what, what, what Polish citizens get, and that that's not okay. Mm. Um, and you know, while while the majority of polls um, overwhelmingly support helping with Ukrainian refugees, there are pockets of of, um, of what you can call refugee fatigue. And observers here would say, um, or political experts here would say, that the, the government, the peace party, is trying to speak to those um, um, to, to those pockets of of the electorate um, that are tired of
1: helping refugees.
2: Mm. Um, uh, If that's true then it's working the the, the Confederation the far right party is losing support um, and peace is gaining
1: Yeah and that that was my next sorry for interrupting you there Um, Justina that was my next question really was about the public support for the war effort in Ukraine is the the Public sentiment on that shifting—is that why, um, the various different political parties mm-hmm. are using it? Um, is there a change in attitude in in, in the public rather than the political space on this?
2: So it's shifting a little bit. I mean, in, um, there was an opinion poll in in April of last year, so two months after the war started, that said that um four percent, I mean just four percent of 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 people were um were against um allowing refugees um into the country. And I think 91% were four, um, four, four. Those numbers are now, I think, 25 and 70%. Mm. So 70% of the nation still wants the refugees to come in and be helped. But it is a little bit, you know, it is 20 percentage point less than,
1: than a year and a half ago. Mm. Let's just uh, take the crystal ball out and do a bit of uh, scenario mm-hmm. planning. What if um in those coalition talks and I accept that they might may take a long time but what if the 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 Polish government was to lurch further to the right what are the implications for the country and indeed what ramifications could that have for the wider EU family
2: I mean I think for the for the war effort um, I think it's clear that that Poland will a course in the war effort mm. um the government has however said that as of um January I think um some of the welfare payments to the, to to Ukrainian refugees will be stopped um because originally that had been planned until you know through the end of December, um, so that that you know that appears to be part of policy. And the rule of law issues, the government has also said, um, and particularly it's, it's um, that the party leader Jarosław Kaczyński has said that he wants to finish um, the reform of um, of the justice system, of course. So that could raise eyebrows in Brussels mm. um, if it continues on the same path um, as it has um, as, as it has until now.
1: And what about and um, the opposition leader Donald Tusk? He's been quite an imposing figure across Europe for many years. Uh, what would a return for him to power mean?
2: That's a good question. I mean, he's he's, he's done the job before. Um, mm. so he knows what he's doing. Um, it, to be honest, it doesn't it doesn't look like the, the most likely scenario at the, at the moment. I think it. I think it was still pass, passing by um, by a small margin, but, but but it's still well. He said very clearly that um, they will they will start governing uh, by trying to undo a lot of the reforms um as you mentioned earlier uh, the, of the reforms of the peace government as you mentioned earlier um one of the issues is media freedom um a lot of um international watchdogs international organizations you know for example reporters um without borders would say that uh, uh, that the government has turned public media um, into a sort of a, a government mouthpiece that um, that uh, media essentially just told the, the government's line. S- so Tusk has said that he would, ch- he would change that um, within the first 24 hours. He has also said that he would um, that the, the, the civic platform, as his party is called, that if they win, they, you know, they would undo a lot of the justice reform. It's extremely complicated, and I think um, it's going to be quite a long process to, to bring back, um, to bring Poland back on a course that Brussels would say um, is, is, is the right course.
1: Okay, well listen, Justina, it's going to be a fascinating two weeks in the run into those elections, but we thank you very much for your time today and talking us through all that. That was Justina Pavlak from Reuters. Justina, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Coming up next, we'll be looking at developments this week in the US and ahead to Donald Trump's civil court case next week. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, he may have been MIA from the Republican debate this week, but Donald Trump is never far from the news. Donald and his oldest sons and his business organisation were all found to have orchestrated a persistent and repeated fraud uh, in which they inflated the value of their properties in Manhattan, Florida, as well as the golf courses that he holds in The US and in Scotland. But what does all that ruling mean for Donald Trump and his acolytes? Well, to look at that and some of the developments in US politics this week, I'm delighted, I'm delighted even to be joined again by Joe Miller, the Financial Times legal correspondent in New York. Joe, you're welcome back to News Talk.
3: Yeah, thanks very much for having me again.
1: Now, um, he wasn't part of that. very testy Republican leadership debate this week but Trump was in Michigan as was Joe Biden on a picket line uh, but again in the sense that certainly from this move uh, the election is really on in earnest now. Is, is, is that the way it seems over there too? Uh,
3: yes it certainly does at least when it comes to the uh, Republican side of things we obviously know that Joe Biden will be running again, uh, and he is in many ways a known quantity, as is uh, Donald Trump, who is by far the front runner for the Republican nomination. But as you mentioned there, um, there are many other contenders to the GOP crown who have been essentially debating it out among themselves um, and um, throwing mud at each other, uh, while Donald Trump seems to exist in his own sort of uh, <laughs> universe. Um, notwithstanding that, however, uh, he seems to be able to create both. Um, negative uh, headlines and perhaps for his purposes uh, positive headlines in terms of um, reigniting his base.
1: Yeah, now so the rule, the reason why we, we asked you, invited you on today was to talk about a specific um, case that uh, we, we heard a ruling about um, from New York this week. It was a case, a civil lawsuit brought by New York's Attorney General. General. Can you just remind us of what Trump and his family were being accused of in that case first of all?
3: Yes, I have to say, Mandy, I had to remind myself, um, because of all of the uh, various cases, including four criminal cases that Donald Trump is facing, um, this is not one of the most high-profile ones. It was brought last year by the uh, Attorney General um, of New York, Letitia James, of New York State, I should say. uh, And it's a civil case, not a criminal case, in which she alleges or her office alleges that over several years, Donald Trump, uh, his eldest sons, uh, his business partners and his business organization vastly inflated the valuation of their property portfolio by hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And they did so not just to be able to brag about Uh, The value of uh, their business, but to convince banks to give them favorable loans. Uh, And this has been uh, rumbling on for for many, many months. It was set to go to a non-jury trial uh, next week, and it may still do. uh, But the judge in the case issued a surprise and very detailed decision on Tuesday, saying that essentially he had established um, that the uh, Trump defendants were indeed liable for fraud and that they had overstated the value and had exaggerated their wealth.
1: Yeah, now, um, he doesn't face prison over this, but it it does have an impact, I guess, on one very serious offering in Donald Trump's uh, brand, which is that he has over... His lifespan been a very astute businessman who has invested wisely. He's an entrepreneur and he's a great deal maker. And this just portrays him and his entire organization as a complete, as as just a complete fraud, a, a liar.
3: Indeed, it goes right to the heart of his popular mythology, which is essentially that he is this guy who built a New York real estate empire, including you know Park Avenue penthouses and big properties on Wall Street and golf courses uh, around the world uh, and he did so using his business savvy, his street smarts, um, his uh, acumen <laughs> for deal making, etc. Um, and this goes right to the heart of that and says absolutely not. Um, there was an awful lot of fraud going on and uh, plainly put, a lot of lying going on um, in, in order to propel him you know, to, to fame and, and fortune um, and it has actually perhaps far more serious consequences than that um, in that the judge ordered that the business licenses for most of um, Donald Trump's entities in New York uh, be suspended. It wasn't entirely clear what that means. And we probably will get more clarity after the trial if it goes ahead as to how that would be enforced. But it could mean that uh, Trump is ultimately forced to dispose of some of his prized properties, including Trump Tower in Manhattan, uh, the, the famous sort of um, golden blazing building that we, we're used to seeing him in. Um, and so it, it could have Uh, It could be a real death blow to some of his businesses or at least the businesses that helped him build his name.
1: Yeah. And that's really the nub of the question for me. And everything to do with Donald Trump, um, you cannot apply normal standards or, you know, kind of predict what's going to happen. But this is something very technical, a business license in New York. If this ruling is to be affected, what would it mean? for his businesses say the likes of Trump Tower or any of those other properties that he owns like would they be able to continue to function
3: it's a, a bit of an open question and it's partly an open question because this uh, lawsuit has been brought using uh, a statute that's quite rarely deployed and it's fair to say that the court in which this is being heard, which is a New York state court, not a federal court, uh, very rarely uh, hears cases of such magnitude or involving you know, such a high profile political figure and such a sprawling property portfolio. Um, On the face of it, people I spoke to uh, after the judgment was handed down, including former judges, said that essentially it means that none of Donald Trump's New York businesses can continue to do business as of today. But of course, as a practical matter, no one's quite sure what that means. Do you just stop doing business? What does that mean? I mean, he's got tenants in residential buildings uh, across the city? Who are they supposed to pay their rent to? Uh, How does this work? And uh, the judge in the case on Wednesday was asked this in open court, and he declined to clarify as to how this ruling would be implemented at this stage. So for now, nothing happens. For now, Trump's businesses, as far as I'm aware, are are continuing to operate in New York. But I Think when in, in the coming weeks uh, the AG's office brought this case will seek to enforce this measure, and then we'll get some form of clarity as to quite how consequential this is for, for Donald Trump and his and his real estate portfolio.
1: Mm. Presumably, he and his lawyers will be appealing this, as they appeal absolutely everything. But will this have an effect um, on all of the other indictments? Well, this is an indictment; it's a civil case, but the other four indictments that he's he's been involved in over the Last six months. um, Will this play into this? Surely this is something they will use to speak to his credibility.
3: They could very well, yes. Um, it won't go to the heart of the matter in, in many of the other cases which have been brought over, you know, as you know, trying to subvert the 2020 election and retaining classified documents allegedly and, and things like that. So uh, this case ha- has no bearing on the facts of those matters. But if Donald Trump decides to take the witness stand in his defense in any of those cases, then you can very easily imagine the, the prosecutorial team standing up and um, literally reading from uh, this, this judgment, you know, in which the judge said that in the defendant's world, uh, you know, rent regulated apartments are worth the same as unregulated mm. apartments. Restricted land is worth the same as unrestricted land. Square footage is subjective. You know, he said that Donald Trump lives in a fantasy world, not the real world. And you could see how, you know, prosecutors would use that to prove that, you know, Donald Trump is not a credible figure.
1: Yeah, and some of the commentary around it, some of the sources, uh, uh, legal source saying this is as bad as it gets in terms of how the courts viewed him. Um, I'm just assuming that um, Donald Trump is going to need quite a bit of money. For his court cases and also for an election campaign, notwithstanding the fact that he gets an awful lot more publicity just by dint of his uh, newsworthiness for all those reasons. But could this affect him in terms of fundraising or even in terms of finance, like his access to banks and things if it were, if it, if it progresses from the court on Monday?
3: Well, you know, Mandy, if you are as unfortunate as me to be signed up to some of um, Donald Trump's campaign email lists, um, you, you'll be used to the fact that as soon as uh, a uh, court decision goes against him, pretty much uh, the campaign uses it um, in order to fundraise. In other words, uh, it seems to uh, spur donations, um, and they send out, uh, you know, emails saying, you know, Donald Trump needs your help. The, uh, the Democratic establishment is is out to to get him, political witch hunt, and the the lines that they, uh, you know, tend to parrot in in these situations, um, and of course, we don't know what's going on inside of the campaign, and we'll get more information as you know, uh, certain disclosures are made as to uh, how healthy its finances are. Um, but it's entirely possible that when it comes to raising money, uh, these decisions are indeed helping Donald Trump rather than hindering him.
1: He really is the anti-candidate. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm speaking with Joe Miller who is the financial times legal correspondent in new york. Now, um finance obviously an an issue in the house as well this week. Um big questions around government shutdowns um and funding uh the the state there. Can you just talk us through what happened and and what might happen next on that front, please, Joe?
3: Uh well, it looks like we're looming towards a government shutdown. Um if if that feels like it's a a familiar story. It's because it is. Um, it's essentially the tactic that the uh, Republicans have chosen uh, ever since Joe Biden um, came into office, which is to try and essentially um, vote down any budget that would extend the debt ceiling, uh, which is a familiar story, which is the way the US works. Uh, essentially, uh, the debt ceiling, which is the amount that the government can borrow, has to be reapproved by Congress. Uh, and it allows um, the, uh, the uh, Republicans in uh, the Senate to essentially stop the government from doing any bu- doing its daily business, and to essentially hold this over as a bargaining chip over the Biden administration, which is what uh, the leadership in uh, the House and Senate seem uh, absolutely committed to doing at this stage. Now, of course, this is the sort of a game of chicken, mm. um, and it's uh, been going on, uh, you know, for quite a few weeks now. Uh, we will see uh, if any last minute negotiations over the weekend prevent this shutdown. Uh, and of course, you know, we've gone into the shutdowns before for a few weeks until there was an agreement because you know the government can continue to function just about on a bare bones budget for perhaps a couple of weeks um, but as things stand it looks like we're heading to a shutdown.
1: Yeah those brinksmen that brinksmanship seems to certainly be much more prevalent now than than ever before but when those shutdowns happen even if they are temporary what type of services are affected or are they affected by it?
3: Uh, it's a different um, it has a different effect on different parts of the government and it's essentially to do with how much of a buffer in funding various bits of the government have so for example when it comes to emergency uh, services uh, law enforcement and things like that um, there is a few weeks of a buffer to pay you know uh, federal police and things like that and to um, pay the army um, and you know essential services but what you tend to find is that all other branches of government you know uh, Uh, municipal services and things like that. Um, start as if they're, if they're you know connected to federal funding whether that's you know the environment agency or the health agency or things like that uh, they literally close down many of them or start to close down from when uh, the government shutdown begins um, and so it becomes difficult to do almost anything that is uh, connected in some way to bureaucrats in in washington and you know that could even uh, affect things like aviation or, or transport because you know there are um, uh, civil aviation authorities And things like that that are connected to to federal uh, bodies. So um, it sort of has a cascading effect, but a a very measurable one.
1: Mm. Finally, Joe, just want to talk a little bit about Joe Biden, uh, first US president on a picket line this week. He's finally acceding to the Democrat request to get out there. Is this him sort of trying to ramp up his campaign and his visibility?
3: It's really remarkable, isn't it? I mean, I n- knew this was happening because it was announced a couple of days earlier, but seeing those pictures mm. of a uh, president with a foghorn on a picket line with you know striking auto workers is is really, uh, really unprecedented. You know, we use that word quite often, but in this case, it, it really is. And you know, one can be cynical about it and say that you know Joe Biden uh, in a swing state sees the union uh, constituency as being vital in in winning um, you know Michigan uh, in <laughs> when it comes to the election next year Um, but i think it also reflects the fact that public sentiment has changed and you know uh, whereas in in previous decades, it was quite easy to demonize, um, you know, strikers. And there was a a robust Republican Party that essentially stood as the voice of big business. Uh, Now things have changed. Mm -hmm. You have, you know, voters have gone through the financial crisis, have gone through COVID, have gone through inflation, uh, and who see corporate profits uh, getting higher and higher and perhaps have more sympathy with strikers than they would have in the past. And on the other side of the aisle, uh, you don't have the sort of full-throated, you know, defense of of market market capitalism that you used to um, have. And so I think Joe Biden has spied an opportunity here and it could very well play out in his favour.
1: Well, there's certainly a lot to keep you busy there at the moment. But that was Joe Miller of the Financial Times in New York. Joe, thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Pleasure. Thanks, Mandy.
1: You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Join us after the break as we look ahead to what the government might do to help supply and support on housing in budget 2024. you welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, from the government's perspective, solving the housing crisis or even alleviating it somewhat requires a complete 360 perspective. They've got to look at everything from solutions that look at incentivising building and developers to assisting home buyers and renters. Today we're going to look at the many different issues that fall under housing and examine some of the things that the government could do in Budget 2024 to try and build a very comprehensive package of measures that might make a difference to the housing market. And joining me to do that, I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Jack Horgan jones of the Irish Times and Marion Ryan, tax expert from Taxback. You're both very welcome. Thank you. Now, for the purpose of this exercise, we're going to do a good cop, bad cop <laughs> effort here. And <laughs> oh. Jack, you're going to be the bad cop. Okay. And you're going to try and outline what the problems are in the very different areas across the housing sector. Very and Mar- good. Marian, No solutions, no, just problems. No, Marion is charged with all the solutions, so... <laughs> We're going What's to start off with the actual building issue, Jack. Mm. Government's targets consistently falling very short of, of what they're aiming for. What are the main issues there at actually increasing the supply that builders and developers are facing when it actually gets to that point of getting the projects off the ground?
0: Well, I mean, where do you start? A good place to start, I suppose, is the targets themselves. Um you said that the government is missing targets. If the government was here, they would say that they hit their, their overall housing target for last year. Um, what they missed was their social housing target. But I think that the bigger problem, when you take a step back from it, is the size of the targets themselves. So the, the approach for the kind of, the first part of this decade is to build about 30,000 homes a year and that's laid out in Housing for All which is the government's overall wraparound housing strategy it's the big kind of uh, cornerstone to the whole thing the problem is that those housing targets are, are largely seen to be a massive underestimate of what is actually needed uh, the, the Housing Commission which is a body of experts brought together by the government themselves uh, have done unpublished research that we we published in the Irish Times in January of this year that says that the real level of need is probably between 50 and, and 60,000 homes so we're well by behind that and every year that goes past where we're getting further behind that and this is something that the teacher has articulated as well he says that we need to ma- build many more hundreds of thousands of homes so that's the kind of that's the starting point the starting point is is an undershoot in terms of ambition um, the other problem that that kind of intersects with is that even if we had the higher targets we don't have the capacity within the economy mm. to actually build out all those homes and Same. we can get we can go go as granular as you want within that but like the made the major the basic problem is that even if we had more money we couldn't put it all to work because of these things called capacity constraints within the economy there's not enough people there's not enough raw materials and then there would be concerns about pouring extra money into the into the economy and causing a further exacerbation of the inflationary spike a spiral rather like the issue is such that you know the, the current capital budget within the Department of Housing can't all be spent and is carried over from year to year. So it's this overlapping mess of problems, really. And we've just described two of them. If we, we could be sitting from here yeah. from here until next week and yeah. we wouldn't get through half of it. That's how complex and vexed an issue it is.
1: Yeah, and IFAC have repeatedly warned the government about um, all those capacity issues and the inflationary problems that might lead to on from uh, overinvestment on the on the capital side. Marion, just I know it's a very difficult one, but if we were looking to try and analyse or assess what the government might do to try and incentivise all, notwithstanding the targets aren't enough, but if they're trying to do something in Budget 2024 to actually incentivise building now, get buildings up and running, get projects off the mark, is there anything that you've seen that's coming down the tracks or has been tipped to actually help this developer-led side this building issue,
4: I think. I think it was said there. Is, is so interesting and so true. I don't know to be honest. Really, I, like everything that's done, it seems to be a lot of it seems to be kind of touching bases. Stuff that looks looks good on the outset, it sounds nice in budget when it's announced there, but in actuality, it doesn't really do anything much to free up the housing market for people. Like even if we look at the vacant homes tax that was introduced last year, that's kicking in next month. It, it's much of a much, just really, there's it is a drop in the ocean there, what are coming from it? And I suppose any incentives that are coming down the line, it seems to be incentives to try and incentivize homeowners to rent out a room in their house. Yeah. The IPOA are looking there for a flat rate 25% on rental income for private landlords. And all of these things, I suppose, are are tiny drops in the ocean there to try and alleviate the pressure some little bit.
1: Yeah, and we'll get into that granular detail of the the buyer and the landlord in a second. Jack, are you hearing anything from government about that side of things? That there's anything that's been put forward like a tax incentive or or anything like that for... Building
0: development. Well, I mean, the great thing about the current minister for housing, Dara Bryan is he's got a scheme for everything, right? So, and 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 you can you can lose track of how many there are, and they, some of them have quite similar names. So there's Cregonahe towns and villages. Then there's Cregonahe cities. Then there's Project Tussie and Project Tussie 2.0. And again, much like the the problem itself, you can kind of get lost amongst this kind of alphabet soup of of, of Gaelic names sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. Just to take one for example, uh, is is this idea that the government will step in and basically act as a funder for the bill to rent sector. It's so the
1: first home scheme no this no, this,
0: this, is, this, this is project point okay. so this is so basically, we all, have become familiar with this idea of build to rent. So an investor comes along, builds a block of apartments, and uh, because the the rents are so attractive at the moment, it's an a, an attractive investment case. And that was kind of the business plan that has evaporated over the last couple of years because the changing interest rate environment means that the the, the returns aren't there and the the capital. There's been an enormous capital flight. So a lot of these um, a lot of these a lot of these projects have become. Stranded, basically. Yeah, I've heard so this is a lot, that yeah, they can't the, find the investment. It's a huge issue, you know. So there's all these kind of they're in they're in limbo, and the idea is that the government effectively will step in and act as a buyer of last resort and start funding these projects, and that they will ultimately become part of a cost rental scheme, which is another one of these much vaunted si- uh, solutions to the housing uh, problem, whereby you get a kind of you get a, a state subsidised rent that is given at a discount to market, and on paper it all looks great. The problem is, much as we heard there, you know whether it's Uh, vacant home taxes or Project OC 2.0 or any one of these schemes, uh, they all seem to be a long time coming. Mm. And it always feels like serious, substantial and meaningful progress that actually structurally changes the shape of the housing system to something that is more suited to our ends is always just out of our reach, you know, and and, and in the meantime, they're trying to run, to, to conduct running repairs on all different parts of the housing market. Like, so one thing, for example, that we're reporting on the Irish Times this week is this sense... That they might introduce a special uh, tax treatment of rental income. Now, that has been knocking around as a potential solution for several years. Uh, the idea being that because rental income is by and large really treated as 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 income income um, that landlords feel that they pay too high, to, high a rate on it and that they have too many expenses to meet out of, out of the income and that it's supposedly one of the many reasons why we hear about this landlord flight and mm. And one of the proposals that's been put forward by the Department of Housing is basically to in some way change the, the tax treatment of rental income whether it's through a lower rate or the introduction of allowances. The problem is that that is faced absolute resistance red in tooth and claw from the Department of Finance who don't like to mess with the income tax code they don't like to go in and tear it apart and put it back together for, for single policy ends so again it's a good example of how you know these ideas just knock around within government and last year the landlords are disappointed it looks like I mean I, if I was a betting man I wouldn't be putting any, any any large wagers on that idea coming to fruition this year so landlords yeah. could be disappointed again I remember a year ago we were hearing about you know would they would they do special in, in, incentives on tax Tax in a geographic sense, for developers to give them that little bit more financial kind of uh, viability on these projects. Again, it came to now. So you know, we hear a lot. There's an awful lot of of noise, but sometimes the signal can be can be hard to extract.
1: Yeah, Marion, just bringing you back in here. Um, last year, we remember we saw that, uh, I think it was a a, a one-off uh, claim that people could make for a rent of €500 euro that, as I understand it, not a great deal of people actually applied for. But looking at the issue of property owners, landlords, lots of criticism um, that either renting out a house or even a room is a very cumbersome process there. As Jack said, the Department of Finance seemed to be absolutely diametrically opposed to this. What type of things could the government introduce in this budget to make a significant change that would be quick and effective for people right now because we seem to have landed in a space where we have a long term rental sector that there's no tax incentives for
4: Yeah, so I suppose one of the first things you mentioned there was the the rent tax credit. So just to be kind of clear in that, that wasn't a once off that was introduced there last year. So the rent tax credit at the moment, it's €500 per person. So it's up to €1,000 for a married couple there. The first thing they could do straight away is that they could double that. And there has been talks of it. It's been whispers around the place there that there is going to be change to the rent tax credit and that's going to be increased for people there. So straight away that puts money into renters' pockets so it takes the pressure off from there. And I suppose I'm always coming from the individual side so I'm thinking of the renter and thinking of the the, the landlord of the, the one rental property. Another thing they could look at doing is increasing the rate there that's tax free for the rent room scheme. Mm-hmm. So currently that stands at 14,000 euros you can earn a year which is completely tax free. That doesn't have to have any anything to be done a simple form 12 return you declare it on it there and there's no tax on it there and that could be really useful in the pressure zones around colleges and schools there with their students it could be empty nesters there that maybe their kids have moved on in their lives they've got one or two rooms there maybe they're a pensioner who's struggling at the moment they can rent out a room to a student there and that's straight away some great income in there for them so that's supposed another way to be looking at so i think what will happen is there'll be some change on the rent tax credit and I'd be ambitious to think that they they would double it there. But but like that, you mentioned that the rent tax credit, it wasn't taken up a lot. Like there's 400,000 people that we suspected were eligible for it there. And about half of that, about 250,000 people, as far as we know, have taken up on it. There is, I suppose, the the limits around it there. If you're paying rent and you're a part of a HAP scheme or you're paying rent to local authority, you're not a, a, eligible for it there as well. So I think maybe they, they could look at those areas as well. And maybe if you're paying rent you claim the rent tax credit therefore you regard whether it's to a local authority or not
1: Well if it is doubled as you say there and it moves to a thousand uh, for yeah. the rebate I mean that should certainly spark a lot more interest than, than half of the people who are entitled to it Jack this is Absolutely. a very important budget from a political point of view like where it is in the cycle of elections now you know before the local elections possibly another budget before the general election but we're hearing lots of talk about things like mortgage interest relief and all that sort of stuff what are the political points? push points for you in this budget when it comes to the housing issue who wants what from each political party
0: well when it comes to housing everyone just wants a solution the problem is that as we've as we, as we outlined you know it's a, it's easily expressed and and not so easily achieved in terms of housing this budget i think that there's a few things that have to be delivered on i think that absolutely there needs to be an increase in the in the rental tax credit um the question is how how big of an increase can they actually deliver There's talk of doubling it, that's correct. But more recently, people are saying it could be closer to 800 euro. And that speaks to a wider problem within the budget, which is that even though we live in a time of plenty and the Exchequer is in extraordinarily good health, uh, the money to, to splash around the place certainly on paper at this stage is actually not massive. No. So we're looking at a budgetary package of about six point four billion. But really, once you once you pay for the, what's called existing level of service, you know the, to provide services at the same level next year, as this year, you're looking at two billion in new measures and one point one billion in tax, and then a TBD of of, of once off measures. That doesn't get you that far down the road, and it's spread very thin. And all the mood music at the moment, particularly from the spending ministers, who last week. We're in at the Budgetary Oversight Committee and they were sounding extremely bearish, extremely cautious talking about how you know we have a window of opportunity to take advantage from all this corporate tax inflow and that window is closing in this sense that they want to prepare they want to squirrel stuff away and set up this investment fund rather than spending it now. Now that clashes headlong into the political reality of being in government because being in government people expect you to de- deliver and to make decisions mm. and that pressure I think is going to be building from the back benches as we head into the Budgetary Cycle over the next week or ten days, because we had a poll out last week in the Irish Times, and it shows really that support for the three government parties is fairly moribund. It shows that the 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 increase in support for Sinn Féin has kind of stalled and plateaued a little bit, but that they're well ahead of the government parties, and that in aggregate, Grid the Greens, Fianna Fail, and Fianna Gael only can command about forty one percent of first first preference voter intention at the moment. So while elections are dynamic and campaigns are dynamic and we're probably a fair bit away from the next election. These are the kind of times of the year when polling becomes particularly important because politicians know, because they're very good at being in high contact with their voters, they know that this is one of the times of the year when people actually pay attention to the political cycle. Most of the time it's background noise. People actually pay attention at budget time and they, and, and it shapes a lot of their voter intent and a lot of the sense that they have of the government's capacity and interest in delivering for them and delivering them from these various challenges that they have at the moment, mostly rooted in the cost of living crisis and the the very acute housing crisis that we're in.
1: Well, look, guys, I, we could talk for another 15, 20 minutes on this, no problem, but sadly, time is upon us now. I just want to thank uh, Jack Corgan-Jones of the Irish Times and Marion Ryan, uh, Director of Business at taxback.com. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Thanks, Andy. Well that's it for this episode of Taking Stock now while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. You can listen back anytime on the app or on Go Loud or wherever you get your podcast from. My thanks as always to all of today's guests for their time and their insights. Thanks also to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy with Simon Keane and Stephen Daunt on research and Hugo Da Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is coming up next with Future Proof. And then it's Sean Defoe with on the record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.